You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, we are delighted to bring you a conversation with Admiral Mike Rogers, former commander of US Cyber Command and director of the US National Security Agency, and current member of CyberCX's Global Advisory Board. Bex Shrimpton speaks to Mike about how the US and its allies have progressed in addressing cyber challenges and the need for industry and government collaboration. They also discuss the lessons being learned from Russia's war on Ukraine, China's approach to cyber and technology development, and the future of the internet. We are here today with Admiral Mike Rogers. You may know Mike. He uh, has had a 37-year career in the US Navy. He spent four years of his career as Commander, US Cyber Command and Director, National Security Agency, a double-headed position, arrangement that I believe... Still still in place, still in place. Excellent. He has insisted in developing cyber intelligence technology policies within the US globally and has included work within the defence, finance, IT, telecommunications and technology sectors. Now, Mike is also a Harvard Senior Executive in National Security alum... And an MIT. Please don't hold that, that <laughs> of the MIT piece against oh, we me. Oh, we haven't finished yet. And an MIT <laughs> Seminar 21 fellow. Now, that's a, that's a great program. And look, delighted to say that you're a distinguished visiting fellow with ASPE, which we really enjoyed and, uh, and the team benefited enormously. Oh, I enjoy it very much. So great to have you back. It's great to be Aspie. here. Excellent. Let me take you back to a time when cyber was not considered a core part of national security in a great story that shows once again that truth is stranger than fiction. In 1983, President Reagan asked his cabinet if the cyber threats that he had just watched the previous night on the now classic film War Games was possible in real life. At the next meeting, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs finally answered with, Mr President, the problem is much worse. We've made great strides since then and cyber is now well established and it's a core national security issue. But as we are almost 40 years since that particular awakening, do you see the cyber challenge as having improved or have things got actually more difficult? So I I wish I could tell you it was a black or white yes or no, but my sense is the, the positive sides to me are broad recognition of the problem. We don't spend time these days talking about getting, trying to get leaders to focus on cyber. That is not a challenge. 40 years ago in the time frame that you're talking about, that was definitely a challenge. Um, So focus, prioritization, allocating resources against the problem set, those are all good things. Um, The challenge to me where I would say the, 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 the slate is not as positive is literally Every actor, whether they be a nation state or they be a non-state actor like a criminal group, literally more actors with greater capability, greater capacity, and the level of aggressiveness or risk that those actors are willing to run is increasing. So if you look at actual results, so to speak, I would argue the cyber threat has only grown, not diminished, despite greater prioritization, greater resources, greater focus and attention. So clearly we're not where we need to be nor where we want to be, my opinion anyway. Excellent. And I'm going to pick up on on that opinion. 
in uh, 2019, you delivered a speech while you Uh-oh. were here as a Distinguished Visiting Fellow. It was an important speech, actually, and you you touched on a number of things that we are looking at with the Sydney Dialogue, including the range of actors that needed to come together in a team approach to resolve some of these issues. You highlighted that there's no one set of actors or no one actor. You know, government can't do this alone. We can't outsource the problem to the private sector, as we as we had thought was possibly the way to go. And at that time, you described a broad set of challenges um, and said, we need a strategy. We need a competition strategy to find the answers to help us implement technologies. And that these are, you know, these are not to be thought of as singular technologies, but as building blocks uh, for, for economic prosperity and security, both for our individual lives and for our nations. Um, in your view, have we yet moved towards a framework that enables our technology companies to compete? You, you foresaw then that this would be a challenge beyond 5G, which was the big conversation at the time. You saw issues coming uh, into play with quantum AI, etc. So have we got that strategy in place yet? Have we, have we got the partnership model that you described then and, and I think we still need today? Between so I don't believe so. Now, it's not because of a lack of effort. It's not because of a lack of attention. To me, it's largely reflective of to achieve the end states I think we want requires us, in my opinion, to pursue a relatively different model. And most bureaucracies, they don't like different models. They like to continue to evolve existing structures. And part of my concern always was we need a very different approach here. Historically, um, and I'll use the United States, another one, the nation I'm most familiar with as an American myself. Um, traditionally, our vision, our view was, look, the role of government largely is to stay out of the way of the private sector and let the private sector power innovation and create competitive and economic advantage. And that in the U.S., the thought was, and by doing that, we, the U.S., have created this amazing private sector. Look at the power of innovation in Silicon Valley and so many other areas. We have created technical capabilities, economic models in the forms of these massive global corporations that generate billions of dollars in profit. The model works. The government just needs to get out of the way. The challenge, I think, with that historic approach is that only works when the playing field is level. And the challenge to me is, particularly as I look at China, guys, it's not a level playing field. You're not just, if you're a U.S. company or an Australian company, you are not just competing against a Chinese company in the private sector. You are competing against an integrated strategy that ties together the power of China, its state, the nation, its capabilities that flow into the private sector. You're actually competing against integrated strategy led at a nation state level. So you tell me how individual companies are supposed to outcompete that. I'm going, guys, I don't think that historic model really is optimal for the world we're living in now. And 5G, in some ways, to me, was the poster child for this, where I felt in a core technology developed by the West, why is it that within literally the fifth generation, 5G, we found ourselves in a position where we were saying, we have no economic alternative We cannot compete at a price point with Huawei, ZTE, and other Chinese companies. And literally, our industry is telling government, we can't compete. We cannot deliver at this price point. So we, private industry, was saying, so we're going to use Huawei, ZTE, and, and 
Chinese technologies in the core 5G wireless structures we created, which created then a situation where government said, wait a second, this makes us really uncomfortable. So both Australia, the United States, the UK, others reassessed that and said, you know, we are not comfortable with the fact that you're going to get Chinese technology embedded within core components of kind of the underpinning technologies that are going to power our economic advantage, hopefully, in this 21st century. The part I thought we missed was, it was great we recognized the challenge and we took the action, but the part I thought I didn't see was, so what are we doing to make sure that that doesn't happen with 6G, 7G, 8G? What are we doing to make sure that that doesn't happen with semiconductors? What are we doing to make sure that doesn't happen with quantum and artificial intelligence? Guys, it's not an isolated case. It suggests to me that there's some fundamental changes that we haven't recognized. And 5G was just the most immediate, the most visible. That's why I say in some ways to me, it was kind of the poster child. And I don't think we've moved beyond telling ourselves we should be worried about Chinese infrastructure within the 5G structures of nations. The part I think is still missing is, so what are we going to do to make sure this doesn't occur in the future? Now, you, you could argue you're starting to see this a little bit with semiconductor policy, um, where, in, again, in the United States, you're going to see that this will probably be, you know, the CHIPS Act will probably be signed into law sometime, hopefully, in the next six months. Boy, sooner would be better, but sometime in the near term, um, where for the first time you were seeing U.S. government money investment and prioritization focused on aiding the private sector to ensure that in this core technology, the production of, you know, uh, chips that the United States and by extension, its allies and, and friends that the U.S. retains a core production capacity, as well as the R&D and innovation capabilities to ensure that we are creating the chips that are going to power, if you will, the future. We haven't done something like that in the U.S. You have to go back arguably to the 1970s, the 1980s, the last time in the U.S. Because again, traditionally our model was government, just stay out of the way. Yeah. Just stay out of the way and the private sector will out-invest, they will out-innovate, they will out-compete. And Semiconductor shows you that we've started to say to ourselves, at least in that one area, maybe that's not enough. You have spoken before about in, the, in efforts to level the playing field, we should not emulate some of the behaviours and some of the actions that we have seen from our competitors and that responding in the same way is not the answer that we need to continue to reflect those values. There is power in the model of allowing the private sector to, to flourish and to, to create innovation. So in developing your model and, and your strategy, um, again, uh, it seems only around isolated cases that we are successfully coming together in what we would, you know, what we would call a, you know, a, a revival, I guess, of industry policy. Um, but I think what you're arguing for is, is, is getting beyond those single cases and those, those responses to, to really thinking, uh, taking a very forward view about having a, a, you know, a much more integrated strategy. And you've talked about you know, investment in the private sector, aid the private sector, but can you flesh out that model just a tiny bit more? How, how do we get beyond responding on, on 5G or suddenly realising there's an issue with semiconductors? So, so to me, there's, it's one, one area where I would give the Chinese credit. To me, they have stepped back and asked themselves, so what are the technologies they're going to power and create 
economic and national security advantage in the digital hyper-connected world of the 21st century that we're living in and is only going to continue. I think they've done a good job of stepping back and say, okay, so what are those core technologies? How do we ensure that we create, if you will, the technologies? We go to the global standard boards. We get our, the Chinese standard adopted as the global standard. And then we, China, create companies that will take that technology, that will monetize it, and will generate economic advantage and do so on a global basis. To be honest, they looked at us and said, look at what they did in the 70s and the 80s, as many of these technologies that we take for granted today started to come in existence. I, I believe they looked at the situation and said, you know, we, in some ways we need to replicate that model. Now, they also did it with a difference. They also asked themselves, so how can, how can the state help this? Hence their use of cyber for intellectual property theft, for example. They, they didn't just go to the private sector and say, well, you just need to spend the money in R&D and develop these capabilities. They actually said, we'll help you. We actually will use the espionage tools of the state to identify where some of this work is being done, to steal that intellectual property, and then we'll share it with industry, with Chinese industry. And again, my view is I don't want us to emulate that. That isn't the approach we should take. But we should be asking ourselves, so what's our vision of the key technologies, the most critical sectors that are really going to both drive economic advantage, but also potentially, if to place at risk, would potentially have the greatest potential for harm, whether that be harm for health and safety, whether it be harm in terms of loss of economic advantage, and then between those two answers, once we come back with what we think those areas, those technologies are, then asking ourselves, so what are the policies we need to do to create advantage in those areas? So we retain, if you will, the advantage. AUKUS is interesting to me in the sense that, for example, people keep focusing on the submarine piece. And I'm not arguing that the nuclear submarine piece is not important. But what's interesting in some ways to me about AUKUS is it tries to look at this from a much bigger framework. It talks about cyber. It talks about emerging technologies. It talks about this idea of we need to use this alliance or this relationship framework between our three nations to ask ourselves in these broader areas that we know are going to be so important to competitiveness and to ensuring our national security, our prosperity, and the safety and well-being of our citizens, we need to work collaboratively together among the three of us. That, to me, is the part I look at and go, guys, that's the longer-term game changer. I'm not trying to minimize in any way that the submarine piece is a naval officer and who also did work on submarines. I love submarines, but I would tell you, yeah, it's, it's the other parts of it in some ways that, to me, potentially might offer the greatest impact. I also hope, and I apologize, I'm riffing a little bit, but I also hope we use AUKUS as a way to overcome some of the challenges that we have in our current structures. In the U.S., for example, we have what we call ITAR, which are the regulations, for example, that we use from a U.S. government perspective to control the flow of technology from the U.S. to other nations, Unfortunately, when we developed those regulations, we retained broadly the, the competitive advantage. Our thought was, simplistically, we don't need the outside world so much. They need us and they need our technology. Well, I'm going, that was great 40 years ago when we created that regime. That's not the situation today. But ITSTAR, in some ways, is still reflective to me of a historic perspective 
that we really need to change. Guys, we need intellectual property, expertise, individuals, investment and capital. We need this to flow both ways. And ITAR is an example of a barrier that makes it hard for it to flow from the U.S. to others. Likewise, I think from an American perspective, we need to ask ourselves, so what can we be doing not only to make it easier for technology to flow to the United States to key friends and allies, but what, what can we do to make it easier for those friends and allies, for their private sector, for their businesses to do work with the United States. I, I'm, again, I'm hoping that we use AUKUS as a vehicle to really drive some pretty deep change in some of the ways we do things. I, I similarly see exactly that opportunity uh, within AUKUS, and it's, it's far more immediate than the subs. And like you said, I think it has applicability across every domain um, and, and in so many different ways. And, and the barriers that you've identified, I mean, these are, these are things that have concerned segments of our of our community for for a long time and you're absolutely right it's not in it's not in the u.s interests or our collective um, like-minded interests that we still have uh, an export regime basically designed for the last century right um, in operation in this one i have to admit i think to myself if we're willing to share nuclear propulsion technology and subsurface warfighting expertise, which from a U.S. perspective is the one domain arguably where we, the United States, believe that we retain supremacy and that we think with some smart choices, there's a high probability that we can retain that supremacy for some number of years to come. We're willing to share something that is so we think is so critical from a, a warfighting and national security perspective, and yet we still have these, all these other regulations that make like, life hard Mike, if we're willing to share this technology, why can't we change things so we can share other things that, quite frankly, we would, we would argue from a U.S. perspective, represent much less risk? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Let's take a turn and let's go to... But not um, for the worst. Not for the worst. One does not want to take a turn for well, the worst. Well, no, not, not for the worst, but in the, in the discussion, it certainly does, it's not, certainly not to a better place because I want to talk to you about Ukraine and some of the lessons... Uh, that we can draw from from what we've seen on some of the technologies that we're talking about in Ukraine. Now, on on cyber specifically, um, there's been a range of views. Some some are really surprised by how underutilized cyber capabilities have been by Russia. Some warn us that you know actually we've not really seen Russia deploy its full capabilities for either cyber or electronic warfare yet. Um, some see the Viasat attack as as being quite a, quite effective and integrated. But then we also have US military personnel, very senior personnel on the record, describing the ability of Musk's Starlink to adapt uh, and become resilient to, uh, to cyber attacks and describe the speed at which that was done as eye-watering. Um, so we seem to have the first participation in war of non-government cyber organisations and, and that's happening in a way that I, I guess many didn't anticipate. What are your comments and, and reflections on what we've seen from cyber in Ukraine? So first, I think the Ukraine-Russia conflict will prove to be a watershed event in the history of cyber. I say that and with the following thoughts in mind. First, it highlights to me again, from my perspective, we need to change our frame of reference with respect to cyber. Generally, we think of cyber as if it isn't significant, visible, and catastrophic in effect, there, quote, must not be much cyber going on. And so I look at 
at what's going on in Ukraine and Russia in respect to cyber. And I think, well, if that's the metric you're using, I guess you could argue there isn't much going on. But if you look below the surface, there's a lot going on. It just, it just hasn't been catastrophic, you know, so disruptive, so visible. So I think we need to change our, fre- our frame of reference a little bit here. That just We need to think about cyber a little bit more broadly. Um, the second thing I'm struck by is for the first time in, you know, armed conflict in some ways, you have two, the two combatants both came to the conclusion, Russia and Ukraine, very early. Cyber will both be a significant element of this campaign. And we whether it was Russia or Ukraine, lack sufficient capacity and capability in cyber. Each of them then um, executed a really interesting model. In the case of the Russians, they said to themselves, we need to bring together the the capabilities of the government to include their military and intelligence services, the private sector, cybersecurity and IT technology within the Russian economy. We need to turn to our citizens to say, hey, if you have expertise, if you have capability— we want patriotic hackers. We want patriotic defenders. And then they also turned to surrogates, in this case, criminal groups operating out of Russia, cyber criminal groups, and said, you know, we want your capacity, your capabilities to function as an extension of the state. Hey, we need more capability. We want you to become part of our Russian cyber campaign. Ukraine does a similar thing, but with a twist. They say, we're going to need more capacity, both and capability, both offensive and defensive. They turn to try to harness the power within their government, as the Russians did. They turn to their private sector. They turn to their private citizens to say, hey, look, we're we're creating an army of IT hackers and defensive professionals. We want you to be a part of this. But they did two things differently. They went to the broader global community and said, look, if you have expertise and you want to be part of this fight, if you want to help us drive the Russians out, if you want to help Ukraine remain free and stand up to this aggression, we welcome the application of private cyber offensive and defensive expertise. And then perhaps the most significant difference, Ukraine went to the broader Western IT and cybersecurity companies and said, we need your help. And so you have seen the Microsofts, the CrowdStrikes, other major IT and cybersecurity firms who have publicly acknowledged we are helping to provide expertise, knowledge, and capacity to support the Ukrainian government. So the, the, the second point I would argue is you're seeing a very different cyber model. This is not driven only by governments. There's a whole lot of actors involved. The third point, so effectively, you watch two nation states crowdsource cyber offensive and defensive capability. They literally used a crowdsourcing thought process and methodology, and you really haven't seen that before. I think there's some interesting implications in that, not the least of which to me is, particularly Ukraine, one of the reasons they have proven so resilient from a cyber perspective is that they, they created this different model that, as I said, brought together these different capacities and capabilities. But they also said, you know, collaboration isn't enough. We need integration. We literally need to work together 24-7 on this. I think that's a really powerful model for the future for us. Can we go beyond collaboration to a much more integrated approach where literally government and the private sector are working side by side on common problems 24-7? I think that's a really powerful model 
for the future. I think there's also implications in the sense that, and I'm still trying to work through this in my own mind, the Russians, um, two observations. First, a question of cyber deterrence. Now, the Russians, from my perspective, have, have made the decision that it is not in their best interest to expand this conflict outside of the Ukraine into other domains like space, like cyber. Not that they couldn't, and not that they haven't done a little. In fact, you've had the EU within the last couple of days suggesting that EU member nations need to publicly demarche and highlight Russian cyber activity um, in January and in May against EU-associated infrastructure. You know, the, the, the KSAT satellite um, and other things. But for whatever reason, the Russians, I think, have decided mm, we're not really going to get into a very heavy, destructive cyber campaign outside of Ukraine so far. Now, that could change. I, 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 I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, is, does that mean cyber deterrence, that there is cyber deterrence? Does that mean that, the, that if there is, it's working? I don't know. But it seems like they've decided, at least for right now, that's not in their best interest. The other thing that's interesting to me, it shows you, and in some ways, cyber is not unlike what we've seen in terms of Russian capabilities on the ground, in the air, and in the maritime environments. The Russians seem to excel in long-term offensive or penetrative campaigns in which the target network is either a, a low or medium level of preparedness and in which the target network structure does not seem to have a high level of change i.e. the kind of situation, if you will, that the Russians were dealing with prior to the war. That, they seem to excel in that. And as a person who is part of teams that penetrated networks for a living, look, a good offensive operation in cyber normally is weeks to months to plan. It isn't hours and days. Where you're seeing them do very poorly to me is against highly prepared networks, that are very resilient and constantly changing, they are really doing poorly. Just as on the ground environment, we've seen the Russians don't seem to react well to an adaptive, you know, rapidly changing opponent in the form of Ukraine military capacity. We're seeing the same kind of dynamic in cyber. Now, I try to remind people, look, and in my previous life, when I you know, as part of the U.S. leadership in this area, I always try to remind the teams that I was a part of, Always assume your opponent is an adaptive learning adversary. So don't expect the status quo as or level of professional or proficiency as seen today automatically to continue forever in the future. That would be my last point. You are going to see nations, whether it be Russia, the United States, China, Australia, etc. The whole world is going to be trying to look at the situation in Ukraine from a, what do we learn from this? What worked? What didn't work? What are the takeaways from this? I think there's going to be a lot of you know, lessons learned, a lot of focus on insights, and a lot of thought about what are the implications for the future. I really think that this is going to prove to be an event that has a significant long-term impact. It's not just a one-off, hey, it was one thing, don't worry, we're on to the next challenge. I, I, with respect to cyber anyways, I don't think so. Yeah, I agree. Look, you, you, you unpacked a lot of really important ideas there, and thank you for that. But one of the the ones that I think is, is really important and underappreciated is cyber 
and space shares many of these qualities. These are these are tools when utilised that are often invisible, intangible, really difficult to sometimes even measure. You don't you don't get your battle damage assessment opportunity. Things don't necessarily go boom, um, and and so they're much more difficult to work with. And they're not um, you know they're not battle tested so much. So I think I think you're right on Ukraine being such an interesting case study for cyber because it's the you know it's one of the first real life war situations where we're seeing cyber now no cyber um competition and right and, I mean, it's you know, been a tool before time, but, but it yeah. clearly has gone to another level oh, yeah. in this very conflict and i think that level is in some ways the baseline for the future it's not an aberration or a unique application of cyber i think you're seeing things we're going to see kind of unfold as the baseline for the future in some ways yeah interesting i'm going to finish with one question that again my I, favorite I, color no I, we're gonna go with something else i hope you can turn this into a positive <laughs> but i'm gonna i'm gonna hit you with a recent uh determination or a finding from the council on foreign relations uh very recently um they put out a report and i'll, I'll quote uh the the determination here the utopian vision of an open reliable and secure global network has not been achieved and is unlikely ever to be realized Today, the internet is less free, more fragmented and less secure. They're actually recommending a change in US cyber foreign policy that faces some of the realities of the internet today. Do you agree? And why or why not? Well, I don't know. My first call would be there's a whole lot to unpack in there. So it's, to me, it's not just as simple. Well, do you agree with everything you just heard? I'm going, well, there's a whole lot of complexity in that, <laughs> in that uh, outline that you just provided. I would only say this. Clearly, if we were creating this structure today based on everything we've known and we have learned and experienced, this is not what we would have built. This is not what we would have created. And this is not how we would have chosen, if you will, um, to try to create some form of governance, oversight, etc. That we would have probably done it very, very differently. Now, interestingly, in some ways, Internet 3.0 is, is, is one element of an idea of, hey, look, we need to learn from this. We need to create a, a, a different structure for at least some subset of processes that we use the World Wide Web for. Um, it also, I think, and I'll just take one small slice of what you said, it also in some ways gets into this, can you really decouple? Is it really possible to break this very integrated, very connected world? Not arguing it's perfect, um, but does this model that we've at least tried to create, does it stand the test of time or for a variety of reasons, are we going to splinter, balkanize, and go into what we commonly refer to euthanistically, uh, euthanistically as a decoupling? Um, certainly the trend is more along those lines now than I would say it was five, ten years ago. I, I still wonder in my own mind, is decoupling from an economic perspective, is that totally realistic I mean, we have just created these business models that were just built on this idea of interconnectedness, supply chain management, you know, unfettered movement, if you will, of supplies, capabilities, components. And we've seen how that has been disrupted for a variety of reasons in the pandemic and some other things. In my own mind, I'm still torn because I say to myself, well, you can see the way the trends are going. On the other hand, I think to myself, yeah, but level of investment in the fixed infrastructure that already exists, that's a whole lot to, to totally walk away from. So probably it's going to be a bit of a hybrid. I suspect it won't be a complete 
decoupling, so to speak, but it will be a, a, a kind of different structure in some ways than we've taken for granted. You know, the U.S. and other nations, to include Australia, um, had always argued, well, we need to look at the Internet kind of as a global commons. It's a little bit like the oceans. It, it's outside the sovereign control of individual nations. It uses a global framework of laws and norms of behavior that we have executed and developed over the centuries. And we have used that to create the movement of people, the movement of knowledge, the movement of goods. It's generated great economic growth. It enables this economic this set of economic models that we've created in many ways. Um, you know, that was always kind of the U.S. and the Australian vision of, hey, that, that, that model's created great good for the world and great economic growth and provided so much information and connectivity that historically the world's never enjoyed before. Clearly, there are others, China and Russia probably being the most visit, visible, who argued, well, we don't really buy this global commons idea. We view cyber as an extension of the sovereign state. And just as I, as a sovereign state, control access to and the activities within my land areas, my you know domestic waters and the airspace above my nation, hey, I, wa I want to and believe I should be able to do the same thing for cyber. So don't tell me about this global commons thing. Um, those competing visions continue. Um, it's interesting in some ways, and I apologize, I'm off probably a little bit the initial question, but it's just an observation that comes to my mind. We had watched the Chinese, for example, very much focused on ensuring that they had some level of control, awareness, and filtering of the f information that was flowing from the outside world into their citizens. What I've seen in the last 18 months in particular is now, uh, not only that continued focus, but also seemingly a focus on controlling the outside world's ability to actually reach in and take a look at, so what's going on within information flow in society? And that's interesting. I, I had not seen that before so much. That seems to be another component of China's strategy in some ways to me. Yeah. And we'll see how that plays out in the coming years, but that's interesting. It's getting a little bit more difficult. If, you, if you're trying to gain greater situational awareness, you know, what's going on, it's getting harder now. Yeah, yeah. In some ways. Look, um, a, a wonderful conversation. I, uh, I, I knew that we wouldn't be able to cover everything I wanted to today, and we didn't, but I just hope that gives us an excuse to invite you back again. Um, hopefully not in as many years as it took this time. Um, but yeah, thank that you COVID so much. thing, three and a half years since <laughs> yeah, I was last down yeah, with ASPE. But hey, it was a pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity today. But more importantly, I have great respect for Australia and its citizens. I'm, I was honoured to be a teammate. I'm honoured to still continue to be able to do work in Australia, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I have great respect for what this nation has achieved and just the character and the nature of its citizens. You know, it's just great to be part of that team in some ways, even though I am not Australian. Oh, thank you so much. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns, and money. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks for listening.